Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 2nd, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID number for Friday, February 28th, is 5984. This morning, A Vision for You presents the rewards of program. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process resulting in a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We submit to a simple process that is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific method for producing a personal transformation. We are changed in the way we think, the way we feel, and especially the way we behave. The channel of grace in us is cleared. The sunlight of the spirit deep down inside us is allowed to shine up and through us. Here to speak with us this morning on the rewards of program is Barbara A. Barbara is a recovered compulsive overeater from Parsippany, New Jersey, who is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous. She currently serves as the Region 7 representative and spends much time intensively working with other compulsive overeaters and carrying the message of recovery. Welcome, Barbara, to A Vision for You. Hi, thank you, Leah. Hi, everyone. I'm Barbara, a compulsive overeater. Let me start by saying what an honor it is to be speaking with you this morning. The first thing I'd like to do is tell you my statistics. I went to my first meeting on June 10, 2000. At that time, I weighed 237 pounds. I've been continuously absent since the day of that first meeting, and it's been over 13 years since my character defects have made my life a living hell. I'd also like to tell you where I am today. I'm someone who has peace of mind, great health, fantastic relationships, financial freedom, worthwhile goals, and with the help of my higher power, I'm becoming everything I'm supposed to be. I'm living a life beyond anything I could have ever wished for. I'm happier than I've ever been, and I feel useful. Every aspect of my life has changed for the better as a result of coming to OA. Some other information about me is that I'm part of the West Jersey Intergroup. I attend two meetings a week. The first one is my home group, and that is the Saturday morning newcomers meeting in Parsippany, New Jersey. It's a two-hour, no-nonsense, positive share meeting designed to show newcomers how this program works by giving the basics for becoming abstinent. There's so much recovery at this meeting, ranging from a newcomer with seven days abstinence all the way up to those with 40 years of back-to-back abstinence and everything in between. Our unofficial slogan is, I know how to eat, teach me how not to. The second meeting I attend is the Boonton, New Jersey meeting on Wednesday night. It's called STONES, which stands for Successful Together on Nothing Except Steps. This is an hour and a half meeting where we go through the big book. It's designed for the newcomer who wants to do the steps as outlined in the big book. Part of our format is that newcomers ask questions, and those of us who have experience in that area answer the questions. It's an amazing meeting with an abundance of step sponsors who are more than willing to take people through the steps. I've been given a lot of time to talk to you today. 
and I'd like to start with what this program offers. I think the best way to do that is to read the 10th step promise. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even food. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in compulsive overeating. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards food has been given to us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. That's quite a promise, and I'd like to use it to illustrate what has happened for me as a result of doing the steps as outlined in the big book. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even food. I no longer have to be angry, retaliate, or justify any of my actions. I fit comfortably in my own skin and in this world, no matter who I'm with or where I am. As for anything, even the food part, this is what I wanted to achieve when I first came to OA. I didn't want the food to be so important. I didn't want the food to be calling me. I didn't want to keep breaking diets. I didn't want to continue to get fatter. I didn't want to white knuckle it. I didn't want to hate my body and how it looked. And as a result of doing this, every negative attitude I had towards my body and my food is gone. I'm at the point where I no longer have the need to put sugar or white flour products or large quantities of food into my body. For by this time, sanity will have returned. I no longer believe the lie that food will make me feel better or that eating will solve my problems. I no longer have that overwhelming feeling that I have to eat or I will die. We will seldom be interested in compulsive overeating. I no longer want to eat huge quantities of food, nor do I even have to make a decision whether I stay within my food plan or not. I know what I'm going to eat and in what quantities. Even if food is in front of me, I know what is mine and what is not, and I happily eat what I plan, and these foods are within my definition of abstinence. If tempted, we would crawl from it as from a hot flame. When I first became abstinent, I would look at the foods that were not in my food corral and say out loud, poison. I now know that I'm the one who makes food hurtful by eating the foods I'm allergic to or eating large quantities. Just as I know not to put my hand on the hot stove, Seeing additional or craving-causing foods is the same to me as seeing pieces of broken glass. They just don't go into my mouth. We react sanely and normally, and we find that this has happened automatically. My daughter, who is not a compulsive overeater, will go to McDonald's, order a meal, eat some of the hamburger, have a few fries, drink some of the soda, and then she's done because she's full. For someone who is not a compulsive overeater, is acting sanely and normally where food is concerned. For me, eating sanely and normally means that after I'm done eating what I have planned, that meal is over. The funny part is that it really does happen automatically. Eating what I planned, being done with it, and then being grateful for what I just ate has become my way of life. We will see that our new attitude towards food has been given to us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. My new attitude towards food came as a result of working the steps. Once I was on the other side of step 12, food just became food, 
something that fuels this magnificent gift in the form of this body. The effort I had to put into it was actually working the steps as outlined in the big book. But once I did that and stay in 10, 11, and 12, no huge amount of thought or effort is needed for me to maintain my abstinence. I just automatically keep doing what is healthy for me to do. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. Fighting it describes exactly where I was before OA. I was constantly warring with the food, warring with my body, and warring with everyone I came in contact with. The miracle is that there are no battles anymore. It was never an all-out war, just a complete surrender and willingness to do what I needed to do each day to get and stay connected to my higher power, and as a result, I can go anywhere and be safe. I don't need to avoid temptation because I look at food the same way I look at art hanging on the walls of a museum. Everything is absolutely beautiful, fantastic to look at, but none of it is mine because the price is too high. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. This is all I ever wanted, to feel safe and protected. By doing the work associated with the 12 steps, I've hooked up with my magnificent higher power who loves me, is always there for me, and only wants the best for me. I'm in a place of neutrality. There's nothing on the outside that can make me feel bad on the inside, and I don't do anything that makes me feel embarrassed, ashamed, or guilty. I no longer judge and therefore condemn, so I don't need to forgive. I wake up each morning with anticipation of what wonderful things will happen in the next 24 hours. We have not even sworn off and said the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. This is what all the step work is about, to get me to a place where the problem, my obsession, has been removed. I no longer have to make promises I can't keep where eating, exercise, or body shape are concerned. You can put 12 Huntsman products in front of me, and I wouldn't even think about eating them. While I started off powerless when I first came to OA, and now connected to the one thing strong enough to overcome the effects of my being a compulsive overeater, and with his power, I can do anything. We're neither cocky nor are we afraid. I'm not cocky because I realize I'm not the one doing this. I'm given a daily reprieve based on how willing I am to do what's needed to stay connected to my higher power. I'm not afraid. I've learned that when I'm afraid, it's only because I've just become agnostic and don't believe my higher power is strong enough to get me through whatever I'm worried about or scared of. I've learned that there is nothing to be afraid of because everything is from my higher power, either to teach me something I need to learn or to protect me from something in the future. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And how do I stay in fit spiritual condition? By living steps 10, 11, and 12 every day, which means I immediately do steps four through nine whenever I am angry, worried, afraid, about to harm someone or have harmed someone. I continuously pray my two prayers. The first is thank you, thank you, thank you. And the second prayer is please tell me what you want me to do and give me the strength to carry that out. I watch for direction and guidance from my higher power. I act as God's agent being kind, caring, and loving. And I carry the message of this program that if you're a compulsive overeater, there's a way out of all this misery, that you never have to overeat again, nor do you ever have to feel as bad as you do right now. And then I use the big book to teach others how to actually make that come true. So now I'd like to tell you my story. Okay. From what I was told, I was born restless, irritable, and discontent. I cried from the time I was born until I was three years old. 
The thing that finally got me to stop crying was when my grandfather put a piece of apple strudel in my mouth. What happened then is the thing that makes me bodily and mentally different than a normal eater. From that moment until I was 45 years old and went to my first OA meeting, my whole life was about getting and eating food and thinking about getting and eating food. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the things I used to do with food. We've all done the same things. Stealing food, stealing money to buy food, eating off other people's plates, eating out of the garbage, that sort of thing. I'd like to tell you two stories, though, that illustrate where I was with the food. The first one is, I was on my way home from work and pulled into Wendy's drive-thru, where I bought 17 items off their dollar menu. As I was driving home, I was shoving french fries in my mouth and dropped one. Instead of being content with the knowledge that I had 10 junior bacon cheeseburgers and six more orders of fries on the seat next to me, I spent the next 15 seconds looking for the one french fry that dropped and barely missed getting killed in a car accident. The second story is about the dress I wore to work the day before my first meeting. It was a maternity dress, and no, I wasn't pregnant, but I wore it anyway, even though it was tight, because I thought it did a great job of camouflaging how big my stomach was and the rolls on my back. The sad part is that I didn't care if people thought I was pregnant. I just didn't want them to think I was fat. I'll begin my before story with the week preceding my first meeting. The date is Friday, June 2nd, 2000. My boyfriend had come over and told me that due to my huge weight gain, he was no longer attracted to me. The truth is that I had been trying unsuccessfully to diet the entire time we were dating, and the last time I'd been successful was a few years earlier when I was able to starve myself to get thin enough to go out trolling for a new boyfriend. But as soon as I found him, I started eating the way I eat and ballooned up to 237 pounds. My solution for this was to go on a diet starting Monday. So I did what I normally did. I binged all week long on the foods I swore I would never eat again and woke up Monday morning with all the resolve and determination to stick to this diet and get thin. I gagged down a disgusting-tasting diet breakfast and went to work where I saw someone had brought in three dozen Dunkin' Donuts and I immediately downed six of them. Then I kept sneaking back to where they were every couple of minutes to grab a few more until they were all gone. Realizing I couldn't stick to a diet, I came up with a brilliant idea that I would find some quack doctor who would put me in a drug-induced coma for six months, and then I'd wake up thin. But until that time, I was going to eat the way that I wanted to. Fast forward two days to Wednesday night when I took my oldest grandson to an all-you-can-eat buffet, where I proceeded to eat more than any rational, sane person would eat. Because I eaten so much, I had pain across my chest and down my left arm. I was convinced I was having a heart attack and that I was going to die. So on the way home, I turned to this five-and-a-half-year-old kid and said, just in case Grandma dies, remember I really loved you. And that wasn't enough to get me to stop because as soon as I got home, I started eating again. Fast forward two more days to Friday night, the night before my first meeting. My boyfriend had come over again, but this time he was swinging a business card in front of my face telling me that some girl had given him her telephone number. And while I couldn't see her name or number on the back of the card, I did see the telephone number that was embossed on the front. Then he left. And as I ate and ate and ate, I decided I would call that number, find out where she was, and confront her. Turns out she had written her number on the back of an OA stock card, and the number I called was the West Jersey hotline. I wound up talking to a very happy-sounding woman who said, 
boy, are you lucky. There's a wonderful newcomers meeting tomorrow morning at 10.15 at the Port Sesame Library. So I decided I would go to the meeting to find the bitch that had given my boyfriend her telephone number. And that's how I found OA. The next morning I went to the meeting, angry. I walked into a room with 55 people, all smiling and laughing, talking about the things they used to do with food, how they didn't do that anymore, and how great their lives were as a result of that. The thing that grabbed my attention was when the leader talked about powerlessness and said she had always wished she could go into a coma and wake up thin. After that, I really started listening to what everyone was saying, and when I talked about sponsorship, someone said, if you're new, I strongly suggest you get a sponsor. So during the break, I did. My sponsor gave me her telephone number and told me to call her each day with my food. When the meeting ended at 12.15, my plan was to go to my best friend's daughter's wedding where I would have my last hurrah and start this thing on Monday. But as I was leaving, my sponsor stopped me and asked me what I was going to eat the rest of the day. I told her what I would eat at the wedding, and she told me to call her if I ran into any problems. I went to the wedding, and I made it to the cocktail hour. I made it to the dinner. Then they brought out the Viennese table. So I went out into the hall and called my sponsor. She stayed on the phone with me for 40 minutes. It was the first time in my life anyone had done anything for me without expecting anything in return or getting paid for it. And as a result of that, I had my very first of almost 14 years of absent meals at a wedding. The next morning, I had another first. It was the first time in a very, very long time that I woke up and did not say to myself, you effing fat pig, you blew it again. Fast forward four months. I have a food plan. I'm committing it to my sponsor each day. I'm eating exactly what I've committed. I'm working all the tools. I'm losing about 10 pounds a month, and I keep hearing about these steps. So I asked someone how to do them, and this well-intentioned woman told me the way to do the steps was to write a life story and look for common threads. I did this and came up with three character defects. I'm a jealous person who's unloved and unlovable. That weekend, I went to a retreat, and the first meeting on Friday was open sharing. I raised my hand and shared that I'd just done my steps and that I have these three character defects. Turns out there was a woman there who had brought her recovered alcoholic boyfriend with her who came up to me after the meeting and said, if you only have three character defects, you probably didn't do the steps right. Then he offered to spend the rest of the weekend taking me through the book, teaching me how to do the steps properly. By the time I left on Sunday, I had completed steps one through eight, I was ready, willing, and able to make my nine-step amends. Because we had read from the doctor's opinion through working with others, I also have instructions on how to do steps 10, 11, and 12. I'd like to tell you how I worked my steps. We read the big book together, and whenever there was some action to take, I took it. By reading the doctor's opinion, I finally got the answer to the question, what's wrong with me? Why is it that even though I desperately want to be thin, I can't stick to a diet. The last paragraph on the fourth page describes me perfectly. I eat essentially because I like the fat produced by sugar, wheat, and flour. The sensation is so elusive that while I admit it's injurious, I cannot after time differentiate the true from the false. To me, my overeating life seems the only normal one. I am restless, irritable, and discontented unless I can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking one bite of food, foods which I see others taking with impunity. 
after I have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, I pass through the well-known stages of a binge, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to overeat again. This is repeated over and over, and unless I can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of my recovery. As we continued reading, I found out more about myself. By reading page 20 of the big book, I learned that I'm a real compulsive vote reader. The big book describes three types of eaters, moderate, hard, and real. I'm not a moderate eater. When it comes to food, moderation is something I zoom over on my way to excess. For comparison, I can tell you that I'm a moderate drinker. I don't care if I have wine or grape juice for Passover, diet soda is absolutely fine at a party, and I never, ever think about alcohol. I can take it or leave it alone, and that is what makes me a moderate drinker. But when it comes to food, on my own, I can't just take it or leave it alone. For comparison about being a hard eater, I use gambling and drugs. I love to gamble. I've lost over $200,000 gambling. I've left my 89-year-old grandmother who had trouble walking on the Atlantic City bus to fend for herself while I jumped off the bus to run to the casino to gamble. I've taken cash advances off my charge card to gamble, and I've used rent money to gamble. Then I bought my home and realized I could lose my house if I gambled away the mortgage money. So I set boundaries of how much I could spend and where the money would come from. And as a result of this reason, on my own, I am able to stay within those boundaries and moderately gamble. I love cocaine. I never doubted that the feeling I got while snorting this stuff was the best feeling on earth. There was something about being that exhilarated, alive, and frightened all at the same time while also feeling indestructible. But when I was in the ladies' room at work 28 years ago with the vial of the stuff getting ready to put it up my nose and someone walked in, I realized I could lose my job. And based on that reason, on my own, I never touched the stuff again. So for gambling and drugs, I'm a hard user who, given a good enough reason, can moderate or stop. But on my own, I can't moderate the amount of food I eat, nor can I just stop eating certain foods. A moderate or hard eater is someone who can just go to meetings and not eat no matter what. I'm the exact opposite. I eat no matter I'm sorry, I'm the exact opposite. I eat no matter what. And because of that, I'm a real compulsive overeater who knows there is no reason on earth. My grandchildren, my daughter, my family, my job, my health, my happiness, my life, sitting into my wedding gown or being embarrassed, just to name a few, that could ever make me moderate or stop for good. When it came to food, I couldn't stick to any plan I made. I lied to myself, and I tried unsuccessfully to have control over the one thing that was the mainstay of my every thought, my every action, and my every waking moment. Because I'm a real compulsive overeater, I have one and only one solution, or the steps as outlined in the big book. So I started with step one. I admitted I was powerless and my life's unmanageable. There's two things that make me powerless. The first is that I have an allergy to certain substances. For me, it's white flour and pure sugar. And when I put these in my body, they create a physical craving. The craving feels like this to me. My mouth waters, back of my throat pulls, my heart beats faster, my stomach crunches, my body is actually vibrating, and my brain is screaming, eat more, eat faster, eat more, eat faster. And these things don't stop until there's nothing left to eat. 
The second thing that makes me powerless is that I have an obsession of the mind that gets triggered whenever I'm not completely neutral. So it doesn't matter if I'm happy or sad or upset about some real or imagined occurrence. The second I'm not as neutral, my brain says that I have to eat or I will die. I believe this, and I immediately start eating huge quantities of the foods I just swore I would never eat again. I start eating huge quantities of food I know will make me fat. Because I have this allergy that causes a physical craving, and because I have this obsession of the mind, a few things happen. Once I start eating, I can't stop. If I do stop overeating, I can't stay stopped. At certain times, I can't control the amount I eat, and I eventually break every promise I ever made where food is concerned. If I realize my problem is lack of power, my solution is to get power. But I don't have that kind of power. If I did, I would have been able to go on a diet and stay thin. I needed to find a power outside of myself, and I was the one who decided what that power was, and it didn't matter how big or small my definition was. All I had to do for step two was to be able to honestly answer yes to the following question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there's something greater than me that can solve my problem? As soon as I said yes, we moved on to step three. Step three is making a decision to turn my life on will over to the care of God. This is only a decision. Again, at that point, I didn't have the power to turn my life and my will over. If I have the power to do this at step three, this could be a three-step program instead of a 12-step one. All I'm doing in step three is making a decision to give my concept of a higher power a try. As soon as I made this decision, we moved on to step four. It's four inventories, five columns each. The first inventory is for resentment. Column one, who am I mad at? My mom. Column two, why am I mad? Because she returned the brownie outfit. Column three, reports of self were affected. My self-esteem, my emotional security, my ambitions, and my personal relationships. Column four, how did I get the ball rolling? I didn't set the table for dinner. And column five, the most important, what character defects allowed me to do what I did in column four, and that's being lazy, disobedient, and selfish. I did this for all my resentments, and then I read them over. And a funny thing happened. A number of them went away immediately because once I saw them on paper, I saw how ridiculous it was to still be mad. For the 53 resentments that did not go away, I reversed them. If I wasn't lazy, disobedient, and selfish, I would have set the table. Then these things would not have been affected because my mom would not have returned the brownie office. When I did this, all but two of my resentments went away because the minute I took responsibility for getting the ball rolling, I stopped blaming the people in column one, and as soon as I stopped blaming them, I stopped being mad. For the two resentments that did not go away, I added these people to my morning routine with resentment prayers. Then I moved on to the fear inventory. Again, five columns. Column one, what am I afraid of? Someone jumping in my car with a knife, taking me to a deserted spot, raping, torturing, and killing me. Column two, why am I afraid? Because I heard that this happened to pros at red stops on Route 80 and internalized it, and the real scary part is that it would be an excruciating pain and my life would be over. Column three, do I realize I'm afraid because I'm relying on myself and my own selfish wants and needs that usually put me in a position to be harmed instead of relying on God and realizing that if I stay close to him and am guided by him, I'll be safe. Column four, there's got to be a better way. What footwork can I do to make sure this fear doesn't happen? Keep my car doors locked, 
make sure I have enough gas not to run out of gas, keep my car well maintained so it doesn't break down, and get enough sleep so I don't have to pull into a rest stop. And column five, what character defects would stop me from doing what I need to do in column four? And that would be being lazy and irresponsible. I did this for all my fears, and then I read column four, and this became a plan of action of the things I would start doing immediately and continue doing so that none of my fears come true. Then I moved on to the harms inventories. There's two of them, harms to others with sex, harms to others without sex. Same inventories except the sex one also asks if I created jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness. Again, five columns. Column one, who did I hurt? A girl at school. Column two, how did I hurt her? By flushing her clothes on the toilet during gym. Column three, what parts of self were stroked by doing this? My self-esteem and my emotional security. Column four, what should I have done instead? Be nice to her and not touch her stuff. What will I do in the future? Be kind to people, not touch what doesn't belong to me, and not build my self-esteem at the expense of someone else. Column five, what character defects allowed me to do what I did in column two? And that was being mean-spirited, inconsiderate, and frightened. I did this for all my harms for both inventories, and again, I read column four. And this became another plan of action, but this one was how I would start treating people from that point forward. As soon as my inventories were done, I moved on to step five. I took my 47 pages of inventories and read him all the character defects I listed in column five. Lazy, disobedient, selfish, lazy, irresponsible, mean-spirited, inconsiderate, frightened, argumentative, lazy, demanding, mean-spirited, interfering, jealous, egotistical, judgmental, opinionated, dishonest, approval lazy, mean-spirited, dishonest, lazy, mean-spirited, jealous, on and on, over and over. The same character defects kept coming up. And as I was reading the character defects to him, a funny thing happened. Suddenly, I realized that there were four or five main character defects that were running my life, and that it was these defects, and not the people and things in columns one and two, that were causing me to suffer. I then told them my deepest, darkest secret, the things I would be mortified over if anyone found out, and then we discussed things I had said, thought, and done that caused me to be embarrassed, ashamed, or guilty. And as I did this, instead of feeling like I was standing in front of a firing squad, I felt as though I was unloading this huge, heavy sack I'd been carrying around for decades, one brick at a time. Then he had me sit for an hour while I reviewed steps one through five and prayed. Then I moved on to step six. Now that I've seen on paper that it's my character defects causing all my problems, do I want them removed? When I became entirely ready, and entirely ready to me meant that I was willing to see who I would be without these defects that I really wanted to know who I was supposed to be before all this crap happened in my life. When I became entirely ready, I moved on to step seven. For step seven, I listed my character defects each one time. Then I wrote next to them their opposite. Each morning, I would ask God to remove the defect and teach me to be the opposite. So I would pray things like, please, God, stop me from being mean-spirited and teach me to be kind. Stop me from being dishonest and teach me to be honest. Stop me from being jealous and teach me to be happy for others. Stop me from being judgmental and teach me to accept people for who they are and what they say and do. Stop me from being lazy and teach me to be someone who does what's needed immediately. I did this every morning for all my character defects until I got to step 10. The other thing I did in step 7 was whenever any of my character defects came up during the day, I would stop what I was doing, take a deep breath, 
as God to move the character defect, teach me to be the opposite, and then, and this is the most important part, I would act as if I was someone who possessed the character asset. Then I moved on to step eight. Because I had done steps one through seven correctly, I was now a little less selfish, self-seeking, and self-centered. And as a result, I began to realize that the things I had done in the past had negative consequences for others, and I really wanted to clean that up. So my sponsor gave me a stack of index cards, and I took my two harms inventories and transferred columns one and two from the harms list, who I had hurt and how I had harmed them, onto these cards, one card per harm. I also transferred the corresponding column four. These index cards became my list of who I was going to see, what I was going to apologize for, how I was going to make restitution, and what my amend would be. Then I moved on to step nine. This is a step where I started to realize how powerful my God is and, if I got out of the way, how magnificently he orchestrates everything. People I thought I couldn't find were suddenly in front of me or available. Perfect situations and the exact right words were put in my mouth with the people I thought I would be uncomfortable talking with. I started having overwhelming urges to go to the people I thought I never wanted to talk to again. I made all my apologies except the few that would cause harm. The most amazing one was the one with my daughter. She was 25 years old at the time and hated me. I had this huge stack of index cards, and I apologized for each and everything I had done that made me such a horrible mother. Then I asked her if there was anything else she needed me to apologize for. Forty-five minutes later, she was done. When she talked, I didn't interrupt her. I didn't retaliate. I didn't justify any of my actions, nor did I try and convince her she was mistaken or wrong. All I did was listen, and when she was finished, I apologized to her for these things, and then I apologized for putting her in a position that made her feel the way she did. Then I made my restitution. I promised her that from that moment on, every interaction I had with her would be one that would show her how much I love her and how important she is to me. Then, with the help of my higher power, I amended the way I think and the way I act so that I could actually carry out that promise. The truth is my daughter and I now have a fantastic relationship, and she really, really loves me. Two things that were impossible before doing the steps. And this only happened because after doing steps one through eight correctly, I wanted to clean things up with her. Before doing steps one through eight, an apology is really this. I hurt you. I feel bad, so you better forgive me so I can feel good again. But that's not what step nine is about. Step nine is getting things straight by fixing the wreckage from the past. An apology without restitution or sincere desire to change does nothing to get me closer to God. Then I moved on to step ten. If I thought I'd start experience God in step nine, I couldn't believe what was happening in step ten. Step 10 is at the exact moment I am angry, worried, afraid, about to harm someone or have harmed somebody, I immediately do steps 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, and then 5. If I'm upset with someone, I immediately do the resentment inventory and stop being angry. If I'm worried or afraid, I immediately do the fear inventory and stop being frightened. If I'm about to harm someone or am harming someone, I immediately do the harm inventory and stop hurting another person. Then I move on to step six. Do I want the character defects I just found in this inventory removed? If yes, I do step seven and ask God to remove these defects and replace them with their opposite, and then I act as if 
I'm someone who has these character assets. If I harm someone, I become willing to make amends in step eight. Then I do step nine. If an apology is needed, I make it. And then, whether or not an apology is necessary, I make plans on how I'm going to amend my ways so I don't repeat these same negative behaviors in the future. Then I do step five. I call my sponsor and say, hi, Ms. Barber. I was just and give her a list of the character defects. For a resentment, I don't go into any detail because remember what a resentment is. It comes from the word centauri meaning to feel. Put re in front of it, it means to feel again. Someone did me a wrong and I can get rid of it immediately by doing a step 10 or I can carry it around with me and keep refeeling it. And every time I think about it or talk about it, the other person becomes more wrong, I become more right, and then I have a justified resentment. And then how do I feel? Tense, upset horrible, maybe even wanting to eat. And what happens when there is another wrong by this person or someone else? Everything becomes bigger than it originally was. I can get rid of these feelings before they block me off from my higher power by doing a step 10 immediately. For fear or harm, after I tell my sponsor the character defects, I tell her what my action plan is. If, when we first learn to do the steps, steps one through nine were done correctly, we've gotten rid of all the things that have blocked us off from our higher power. If, when we first learn to do the steps, steps one through nine were done correctly, we're now able to get messages, signals, and cues from our higher power. Step 10 is where God decides which character defects he wants us to work on. He does this by putting people and situations in our path where we get the opportunity to be and do the opposite of what our automatic reaction has always been. When I first started doing step 10, I had to do it 20 to 30 times a day. But by doing so many so often, I learned a lot of valuable lessons. The main one being that God is the one who removed my character defects, but only when he thinks I've learned enough and practiced the opposite enough so that when he removes the defect, it will be replaced by the proper thing. I learned in step 10 to be grateful for everything that was happening in my life, even the things I didn't think were so wonderful, because I learned that everything that happens is from my higher power, and you teach me something I need to learn, but you protect me from something later on. I learned in step 10 that my process is only for me. Whatever anyone else does, whatever happens to them, has absolutely nothing to do with me. I can share another's joy and help if necessary, but there's nothing I need on the outside to make me okay feel okay on the inside, and there's nothing on the outside that can make me feel bad unless I internalize it and carry it with me. I learned in step 10 how powerful my God is, how wonderful he is at teaching me the things I need to learn, and what a great sense of humor he has. By doing so many step 10 so often, the 10th step promise very quickly came true for me. I stopped fighting anyone or anything, even food. I was put in a place of neutrality, safe and protected, and the obsession was lifted, so my problem was removed. The minute I realized how magnificent my higher power was, I slid into step 11. Step 11 is where I actually carry out the decision I made in step 3 to turn my life and my will over to the care of God because I'm now more than willing to have God run every aspect of my life because based on my own experience in working the previous steps, I learned that anything God has in store for me is 10 billion times better than anything I can plan for myself. My prayer life changes in step 11. I stop telling God what he should do and instead only have two prayers. The first one is thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm always expressing my appreciation for everything, 
which puts me in a constant state of gratitude. And the second prayer is, please tell me what you want me to do and give me the strength to carry that out. Instructions for step 11 are on page 86 of the big book. They tell me what to do at night. Constructively review my day, which to me means that I view my day without beating myself up. All I'm doing is looking for anything I might have missed during the step 10 on. I'm looking for anything that needs to be corrected. And more importantly, I'm looking to see what lessons I was to learn that day. Instructions tell me what to do each morning. Upon awakening, I plan the next 24 hours, which to me means based on what I found the night before, I make plans on how I'm going to make any needed corrections, and I make plans on how I'm going to incorporate what I learned yesterday into what I'm going to do today. And the last part of the instructions tell me what to do throughout the day. Stay connected to my higher power, reconnect as needed, and constantly look for his guidance and inspiration. And then there's step 12, my favorite. It's in three parts. The first part is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. A spiritual awakening to me meaning that my way of thinking and my way of acting have dramatically changed for the better. A spiritual awakening to me meaning that I know there's a God personal to me who loves me, is always there for me, and only wants the best for me. A spiritual awakening to me meaning that the knowledge of the constant presence, guidance, and love of my higher power is the most important thing in my life without exception. The second part of step 12 is carry this message to compulsive overeaters. And to me, the message is, if you're a compulsive overeater, there's a way out of all this misery. Just do exactly what it says to do in the first 164 pages of the big book, and you will never overeat again, though you ever feel as bad as you do right now. And then there's the third part of step 12, which is practice these principles in all our affairs. The principles themselves are honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, willingness, humility, self-discipline, love, perseverance, spiritual awareness, and service, unity, trust. I'd like to tell you my favorite passing it on by living the principal story. A few summers ago, my oldest grandson was visiting from Florida. We were on our way to lunch when a young girl ran the stop sign and broadsided my car. I didn't yell at her. I didn't try to make her feel bad, nor did I have a hissy fit about the terrible condition of my car. Instead, I was patient and kind and helpful because I now find being mean objectionable. When my father told me to sue her, I knew I wouldn't because I now find being greedy objectionable. And when my younger sister told me to say my neck and back hurt, I knew I wouldn't because I now find being dishonest objectionable. I was able to very gently say to them both, thanks for the advice, knowing I wouldn't follow either of their suggestions. The accident didn't affect my mood. I wasn't upset. I didn't complain. I didn't talk about it continuously. Instead, I acted like the person my higher power wanted me to be. That night, when I did my step 11 review of my day, I knew I had not retaliated, I was not resentful, I was not fearful, and I had not caused any harm. Because I followed directions of the big book, I was able throughout that day to live by the principles of this program. My grandson got to witness that. And as a result, at 10.30 that night, the 16-year-old kid came in my room and asked, Grandma, could you teach me those steps of yours? So what do I think is the secret to success in this program? I can sum it up in one word, surrendering. And I'd like to finish up by taking 
by talking about that for a few minutes. Anyone who has read the big book knows that Bill Wilson had a non-alcoholic doctor, Dr. Silkworth, help him with this program. What Dr. Silkworth did was explain to Bill what he thought our actual problem is. His theory is that we have an allergy to certain substances, and we put these in our body, they cause a physical craving, and we have an obsession of the mind that even when the substance is not in our body, we can't stop thinking about it, and at some point, we give in and ingest the things we know will eventually kill us. Based on this and other information, Bill, with his higher power, wrote the big book, which is a book of instructions on how to work the 12 steps, and the 12 steps are a set of instructions on how to get rid of the things blocking us off from our higher power, how to get connected to God, and how to stay surrendered. What most people don't know is that our co-founder, Dr. Bob, also had a non-alcoholic doctor help him, but with the other end of the program, how to stay recovered. This doctor's name was Harry Tebow, and Harry Tebow wanted to find out what magic ingredient enabled the person who had tried for years and years unsuccessfully to then come to a 12-step program and be able to finally put down their substance. And he wanted to find out what made some people continue to stay in recovery while others did not. Harry Tebow's theory is that when a newcomer came into a 12-step program, their ego was smashed, and those who stayed recovered were people who, through their actions and thoughts, continued to do the things that would keep their ego reduction permanent. Those who were not successful were people who had their egos rebuilt. And there are many ways the ego rebuilt. Some of these are the person started to have an opinion of themselves, whether they were the best of the best or the worst of the worst. The person started criticizing what God was doing by thinking they should have more, have things change quicker, or that they were the ones in control of what would happen in their lives. Or the person started thinking they were everyone else's higher power by judging, criticizing, and trying to control what other people think, say, and do. When applied to the steps, the ego rebuilds in these ways. People don't learn the steps. They don't work the steps as outlined in the big book. They are improperly taught the steps. Or after learning the steps, they don't live in steps 10, 11, and 12. On an individual step basis, the ego rebuilds because people forget their step three decisions to let God be in charge of everything, and they start to believe they are the ones in control of one or more aspects of their lives. They forget their step seven and think they are the ones who remove their character defects, or they become impatient with God's timing. They forget to do, and have been taught correctly how to do, and don't realize the importance of doing step ten which is at the exact moment they are angry, fearful, or harmful, immediately doing steps four through nine so they can reconnect with their higher power so he can teach them to be the opposite of the character defect. They forget their step 11 and don't pray and meditate, and even if they do pray, it becomes prayers telling God what he should do instead of just saying thank you or tell me what you want me to do and give me the strength to carry that out. And they forget that step 12 means that their purpose in life is to help others and instead, they go back to focusing on their own selfish wants and needs. So according to Harry Tebow, the way to get recovered and stay recovered, in other words, the way to not relapse is to have your ego smashed and then do the things necessary to make the ego reduction permanent. And the only way to have that happen is to do everything the big book says to do, stay in a state of gratitude and completely surrender to your own concept of a higher power every waking moment, 
of every day. I need to see my desperation in my inability to stop and stay stopped so I can see my only hope is connected to God and staying connected. I have to surrender. Surrender is my ego being humble. I have to surrender and not just accept. Acceptance indicates that I'm doing something. Surrender is letting God do it. Acceptance is only partial surrender. Real surrender frees me from all the traces of self that have been fighting giving up the food. If I don't surrender, I'll keep hitting bottom without anything significant happening. Surrender is just giving up being the boss and just being human. When I surrender, I give up all control. When I surrender, I give up my pride, my arrogance, my pushiness, my dominating ways, my attention-seeking, my aggression, my being opinionated, my stubbornness, and my impatience. When I surrender, I turn the following things over to God. How I think about food, how I think about my body, what and how I eat, what I should look like, what I think about, what I should have, how I feel as a result of outside things, and what others should do. For me, the definition of surrendering is going over to the winning side, and that is exactly what I have done. And the easiest way to surrender is to do what it says to do at the bottom of page 62. This is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. And when I apply that to myself, is that if God's the director, he's the one who sets everything up, does the complete story and the outcome. If I act like the actor, I'm being told what to do, it's someone else's plans and story, and I get cues on what I'm supposed to say and do. If God is the principal, it means he's the main one. I'm just his agent acting on his behalf, telling how wonderful he is. If he's the father, he's powerful, protects, and in charge. And as the child, I'm obedient, teachable, watched over, and taken care of. This program is amazing. It transformed my life, my thoughts, and my relationships. As a result of working this program, I have now become who I was born to be, someone who is connected to something magnificent, someone who has a solution to every situation in my life, someone who is part of everything, and someone who realizes there's abundance in God's world. There's more than enough time, people, things, and money, but above everything else, there's more than enough love. And that is all I ever really wanted anyway. Thank you. Barbara, thank you so much for sharing with us your story of personal transformation, your spiritual awakening as the result of the 12 steps. Much appreciated. Before we open the floor for question and answers, uh, Barbara, can we get some contact information from you? Sure. My name is Barbara Armstrong. I live in Parsippany, New Jersey. My telephone number is 973-463-1998, and my email is antbabs, A-U-N-T-D-A-B-S-54, at yahoo.com. Thank you. And I'll repeat that for those on the line. Then again, Barbara's phone number 973 463 
8, and her email address, antbabs54, that's A-U-N-T-B-A-B-S-5-4, at yahoo.com. Barbara resides in New Jersey, so of course that's East Coast time. Now we'll open the floor for any questions you might have for Barbara this morning. And you can uh, press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Uh, Hi. Yes. Hi. I heard two. Go ahead. Sorry, this is Kathy from Canada. Um, Good morning, Kathy. And I heard somebody else. Who's the other person? It's Kathy from Boston, Leah. I'll wait. Okay, so Kathy from Boston, you'll be second up. Okay, go ahead, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Barbara, what you're so inspirational. Um, What I wanted to know was where did you find the information on Harry, is it Dr. Harry Tebow, and how do you spell his last name? Um, how to spell his last name. You know what? I heard a magnificent, magnificent speaker who was talking about Dr. Bob as opposed to Bill, and he had mentioned it. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I think it's T-I-E-B-O-W, but I'm not positive. Okay. Um, yeah. But if you um, send me an email, I will try and get that information for you. Thank you very much. It was very, very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And Kathy Kay from Boston, please. Thanks, Leah. Uh, thank you so much, Barbara. This is Kathy Kay from Boston, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I so appreciated your share today. Um, It was such a model of how to rigorously work this program, um, which I need to be reminded of every day. And I I also hope all my sponsees listened as well. The The area that I seem to have the most difficulty with right now in my own recovery is making sure uh, that I continue doing steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. Um, I'm pretty good at 12 because I have sponsees calling me, but I can easily uh, skip on my morning prayer time if life gets too busy, or I can skip my nighttime review if I'm too exhausted. And I'm just wondering um, how you handle uh, those steps in a busy life. Sure. Um, okay, step 10. By doing so many, I got really, really good at it. I could do it in my head in five seconds. And for me, step 10 is the minute I get that knot in my stomach, that something's not right. The second, even a drop, I'm not connected to my higher power. I immediately do step 10. I go right through the inventory really quick. I look for the character defect, ask God to stop me from being a teach me to be the opposite, act as if I'm that, and then if an apology is needed and otherwise make plans on how I'm going to act differently from that point forward. At step 10, after doing it so often, you can have it done within 10 seconds. 
Yeah. The thing that also happens by doing step 10 so often is your character defects start being removed. So you're not going to be as angry all the time. You're definitely not going to be causing harm. And like the fear, the minute that you're fearful, you just start doing your action plan. So that's how 10 fits into my life. You know, when I started at first, it was 20 to 30 a day. Then after a while, it was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't had to do it all day. And then all of a sudden, it was like like once a week or once a month. It's amazing how that works because God, once he comes into my life and I let him direct me, the character defects really do go away. Mm. As 11, even if I don't have time in the, for a morning meditation, like, you know, a definite, definite, you know, way that I would do it, while I'm driving to work, I have conversations. My biggest prayer is just thank you. Thank you, God, that I woke up. Thank you for another day. Thank you that my car started. Thank you that I got to work on time. And what happens for me in that constant state of gratitude that I don't take the credit for anything and I consider everything a miracle, that to me is the group that I can have to God. It's just keep acknowledging that he's in my life and the wonderful things that he's doing for me. And then for step 12, because, you know, I sponsor a lot, a lot of people. Um, and the reason for that is because once I find God, I have to talk about him. And the only people who really want to hear it are brand new sponsees. Well, and so that's how I live 12, because I'm an, an example of what this program can do. And anybody who will listen, I tell them how I did it. Thank you so much. That's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Kathy Kay, for the question. Who's next with a question for Barbara? I have a question. My name Your is name, Joanna. please? Yeah, my name is Joanna. Joanna, go ahead. I'm a ahead. overeater and sugar addict, and I wanted to ask Barbara, if, what is a action plan and how do you do yours? Okay, uh, before they actually made that a tool, I always had an action plan. I was someone who always had lists, but before a program I had lists that were impossible. There were just way too many things on it or things that I could never accomplish. As I, once they brought it in, I realized that once I got into OA, my food plan was an action plan if I followed it. Um, taking all the tools and, and doing them every day was an action plan. And once I learned how to do the steps, when I get to that fourth column for the fear inventory, when I list all my fears, that fourth column becomes a whole bunch of things that I can do. So, like, for example, I used the one about someone jumping in my car. Another example would be like, and a lot of people in OA I find have this, they're afraid of gaining weight. And why? Because they would look terrible, they'd feel terrible, or they'd be embarrassed. Column three, they're relying on themselves instead of God. Their action plan for column four would be, what could I do not to gain weight? And it would be like, stick to my food plan, work all the tools, stay honest with what I'm eating, exercise, or anything that you can think of. And for me, that's the real action plan. What can I do so that my fears don't come true? Or even like for, um, for um, like harms. If, like, on a harm inventory, like if I had um, stolen blouses from grants, so column one, who did I harm, WG grants, how did I harm them by stealing two blouses, parts of self that got stroked, my pocketbook, and my ambitions. My column four action plan would be what should I have done differently and what am I going to do in the future? So I shouldn't have stolen from a store and I should have paid for items. 
and my action plan becomes pay for the things I want and don't take what doesn't belong to me. And for me, that's my action plan. What do I do to stay in the grace of God and have contact with them? Because the minute I'm fearful or the minute I've harmed somebody, it doesn't matter if it's big or small. Anything that disturbs my peace of mind shuts me off from God. And if I do the things in my action plan, it brings me right back to him. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your share. Thank you. Thanks, Joanna, for the question. Who's next with the question, please? This is Inabelle. Hi, Inabelle. Go ahead with question only. Thank you. I would like to give you the spelling of Harry Debo's last name. T-H-I-E-B-O-U-T. You may be able to Google uh, his writings. Thank you. Thank you, Inabelle. Again, Dr. Tebow's spelling of the last name, T-H-I-E-B-O-U-T. Thanks for checking up on that, Inabelle. Much appreciated. Who's next with a question? This is Heidi. Heidi, your turn. Thank you so much. This is Heidi W., a compulsive overeater in Denver, Colorado. Barbara, thank you so much for for sharing your story with us this morning. My question, forgive me, I I wake up... um, I set my alarm on a Sunday morning for these, so the first part I'm a little sleepy as I'm uh, or laying in bed and listening. I think I heard you say that you've been abstinent since the day of your first meeting. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And did I also hear you say that how long was it that you worked through the steps? So how long was that process for you? Um, Wait for not one through eight, and I mean everything for nine was one weekend. Okay. Do you want me to elaborate on that a little yes, bit? Yes, that would be great. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, the thing about being abstinent right from the beginning, it, you know, I hear this, this sentence, you know, struck absent. It was a lot of work. I walked into a room of people who wanted me to succeed. I had a sponsor who didn't care what time of night I called her or what she needed to do to talk me through. Um and that's, you know, and I did everything that I was told because I wanted to be just like these people, even if it meant going to sleep at 6 o'clock at night as soon as dinner was done, even if it meant keep taking like 50 hot showers because every time I thought about eating, go and take a shower because I can't eat in the shower, even though I know some people do. Um, and then the other part um, about doing it in a weekend, when the guy came up to me and offered to take me to the big book, he was just someone who had a look in his eyes and a way about him that this is who I want to be. And he only offered from Friday night through lunch on Sunday. We didn't sleep, took bathroom breaks very quickly, ate, because as a compulsive overeater, I wasn't going to give up the meals. But he went through talking about what really mattered without any of the fluff. And we did exactly what the, the book said. One of the reasons that I think I really am a success in this program is that I have someone who actually lives this program teach me. And then once I left on Sunday, I didn't know his last name. He didn't give me his telephone number. I had to rely on the big book instructions and my higher power in order to succeed. And because I was only relying on my higher power, I think that's why I really, really have that connection because there was no quote-unquote life coach or someone that I could run to and say, tell me what to do, tell me what to do. 
I had to wait for the inspiration from God. Thank you, Barbara. And did you did you find after that work had food was Monday morning was food neutral to you or did that take some time? Um, food had it was like really weird. Something had happened to my brain that first meeting where even though like I wanted the food, there was always something that would stop me. It was just the. I had people around me that even, you know, like the phone calls, they would call me. I had like 32 people who called me on a daily basis to make sure I was okay. So even if I was having thoughts of eating or walking over to the refrigerator, which was a habit I had every commercial, open it up to see like maybe somebody had snuck something in there that I could eat that wasn't abstinent. But I, the, the, the craving stopped the minute that I stopped putting this, the, food in my body. The obsession was lessened and lessened and lessened. And even to the point where like what I would do is even if the thoughts in my head came, all of us, please God keep me absent, please God keep me absent, please God keep me absent. And then all of a sudden once I think it was step ten, where all of a sudden I realized I was at a, a party that had nothing but desserts and it didn't matter. So I think ten while it had lessened it was always there in the background, but I think when I did 10 properly, that's when the obsession was removed because now food is completely neutral for me. Okay, thank you, Barbara. God bless you. Heidi, thanks for the question. Who's next? Questions for Barbara? This is Colleen. Um, I'm from uh, Utah. I have a quick question. On that note, on step 10, when you did that, when you recognized you had something you needed to work through, did you call someone, or did you just do it between you and God? Um, at the beginning, what I would do is I would do four, six, seven, eight, nine, because what I was taught was don't do five right after you do that, because the person you need to apologize will already be gone. So it was I did that, and then I would call my sponsor and just say, you know, hi, this is Barbara. I was just lazy. Hi, this is Barbara. I was just mean spirited. You know. Now, four, 13 years after doing the steps, it's between me and God. And the great part about it is there are weeks that go by that I don't have to do a step 10, which I find amazing because mean-spirited and being angry was my whole life pre-program. The idea that I decide it's time to go to sleep, I do my step 11 review, and then there are times I don't even know my head hit the pillow. I have this whole peace of mind where there's nothing going through my head. How dare they do this? How could they have said that to me? I should have done this. None of that happens anymore. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Colleen, for the question. Anyone else with a question for Barbara? Hi, this is Frances. Hi, Frances. Go ahead. Uh, Thank you, Barbara, for your for your qualification, it was really inspiring. I just maybe I missed this part, but in terms of that business card that your boyfriend showed you, do you think was that an intentional thing? Did you thank him for being that oh. messenger to you? No, it wasn't intentional. It's just there were a whole bunch of coincidences that got me to OA just at the time when I had really hit on the guy I was in love with, thought I was too fat, and didn't want anything to do with me sexually or taking me out and and, and introducing me to his friend. He was embarrassed by the way I looked. 
And what happened was I had gone to that meeting looking for her. Turns out she was at the meeting. I didn't find out till a month later who she was. But the funny part and another coincidence for getting me there was if she had had any other piece of paper on her, she would have used that to write her name and number. She only had a bunch of always stop cards in her pocketbook and used one of them to write it on. Unbelievable. Thank you. Thanks very much. Who's next with a question? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Nancy O from Ohio. Nancy, your turn. Okay, I have a question. Thank you for your share today. My question is, can you briefly touch on how you work with sponsees today in your recovery? Thank um, you. Yes, I can. And actually, it's funny because I have had so many people ask me that, that I actually wrote it all down and have like a, a, a whole thing that starts from when somebody walks in all the way through doing the principles and the traditions. If you're interested in getting that, just send me an email and that's 54 at yahoo.com. I will email it back to you, anybody who's interested in that. But basically what I do is like um, when I first meet somebody, and my newcomers meeting is a great way to get people. We, oh, we have anywhere from six to ten newcomers each week. And so what I do is somebody asks me to sponsor them, I tell them right up front, you know, I'm not your doctor, psychiatrist, life coach, mother. I'm here to teach you how to do these steps. But for the first five weeks, I'm going to give you assignments each day, and your job is going to just say okay. And if they agree to that, I sponsor them. And what I do like for the beginning is um, the first day, besides giving me their food and three gratefuls, they make an additional call. Second day, they make two additional phone calls. Third day and thereafter, they make three additional phone calls. On the fourth day, I have them write down their red light, yellow light, and green light foods, and I explain to them what they are. On the fifth day, I have them write a story of what their life would be like if it wasn't controlled by food. A day in the life is, and things that are real, not fantasy. The sixth day, I have them write how they've been feeling being abstinent for the past five days. Um, On the seventh day, I have them write down their definition of abstinence because I'm never going to be somebody's watchdog. They have to decide whether they're abstinent or not because whether they succeed or fail is totally up to them. Then the next day I have them look at the fantastic day of my life would be and they pick one item a day from that and commit it to me as an action plan. Um, Then I have them buy the literature with with reading a minimum of one paragraph a day. Um, the next day, I have them start writing whatever they want about what they read. Next day, I have them look in the mirror and write down all the things they like about their body and what it does and forget all the negative stuff. Because, And I do that because I know for me, someone had me do this, and it was like, I like my eyes, my ears, my teeth, and my hands. And every time I had looked in the mirror, it was like, oh, your stomach is so fat. It hangs down to your knees. Like, I only looked at the negative things. So this told me that there are some good points. And then it was also, what does my body do? Well, it turns an apple into blood and bone. It heals itself. It gives me pleasure. I can see. I can hear. And that really is a great thing for most of the people I work with. 
Um, after that, I have them start doing any form of service. Um, then at two weeks, we discuss their food plan to make sure it's really working for them. Um, I make sure that they're attending at least one face-to-face -face meeting and sharing at their meeting. At three weeks, they stand up as an available sponsor because in my group, you only need 21 days absence to be a sponsor. At four weeks, they leave the meeting, and as soon as they leave the meeting, they buy a big book or I buy one for them, depending upon who it is and what they need, and we start reading the big book together. What I do is I have them start with the doctor's opinion, reading it, one gets home, writing down any questions they have, and when they're done writing what they think about the chapter, they call me, we go through the chapter, they read me their underlines, I answer questions, they read me what they wrote, if there's anything we need to discuss, we do, and then through the chapter being their teacher. And we do this with every chapter up until how it works, and then I start reading to them, and the minute that we come to any action, I, we get off the phone and they do it. We go all the way like that up until step five comes to my house, five, and we do six and seven. They make their list for eight. They come back to my house to make sure that no apology is going to hurt someone. They do nine, or at least start nine, and then we get them on ten, and then they leave me tons of messages at home with their character defects. And what happens is at some point I'll hear it in their voice, they have slid into 11. Their conversations about how magnificent their higher power is. Then we start reading about the instructions for 11. And then they read the chapter, working with others, and they go out and teach others how to do the steps. So sorry, you had asked for a short one, but I gave you a long one. Could you repeat your email address? It's antbath, A-U-N-T-B-A-D, by four at yahoo.com. So it's antbass54 at yahoo.com. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions this morning? Hi, this is Diane from Michigan. Hi, Diane. Go ahead. Um, thank you so much, Barbara. One of the key things that you said that resonated with me is that you stop blaming others and stop being mad. When you stop bl blaming others, you stop being mad. Um, part of my challenge is that I don't often see until much, much later that I am blaming people. Could you elaborate on how you've identified when you're blaming others and how you have worked to change mm -hmm. it? Yeah, for me, being mad was my way of, like, you know, restless, irritable discontent. For me, and being angry. No matter what anybody did, I misinterpreted as somebody was doing something to hurt me. Um, and for me, when I get angry, it starts off with a knot in my upper stomach and then spreads really big, you know, to the point where I can't even swallow. So I'm always very aware of when I become angry. So what happens for me now is if I get that little knot in my stomach, that's my signal because I'm so in tune now to how my body reacts. And, and the cool part about this is um, one of the things that I learned is that I really can't blame anybody else. Deepak has a line that it is such as um, our problems we believe are of our own making. 
And for me, that is such a fantastic line because it means I don't have to wait for anybody else to change in order for me to be happy or content. I only have to change me or my reaction. And so what I learned by doing the steps is that no one's really to blame. God, everything is from my higher power to teach me something, and the people who get me upset are the best teachers I will ever have. Because if there's someone who every time I see them annoys me, if I can get to a point where what they do doesn't affect me, they have taught me how to be the opposite of my character defect. And then God will remove the character defect. I'll very quickly tell you a joke. (laughs) There's a woman whose husband dies. She goes to the funeral home and says to the guy, very much blue suit. He loves his blue suit. Every 10 minutes, she keeps going back. No, I like the brown suit. No, he likes the blue suit. Brown suit, blue suit, brown suit. And after a couple of hours of doing this, she goes to the funeral director and says, you know what, just bury him in the blue suit. I'm sorry, with such a pain in the neck. And the funeral director said, it was no problem. All we do is change heads. So what does that have to do with being angry? It's You'll find when you do your inventories and when you're in step 10, all you're doing is changing heads. It's the same character defects over and over that put you in the same situations with people. They're really not to blame. They're just your teacher on how not to react that way. And once you realize it's the character defects and you really want them removed, People will stop annoying you and you will stop being angry and definitely you will stop blaming. Oh, thank Thanks. you so much. That's a great paradigm shift. Thank you. Thanks, Diane, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Hi, it's Michael. I'd like to share if I may. Hi, Michael. Questions, please. Hi. Thank you. I'm just really... Um, Going ahead, put it into a question. Um, you just continually go through the big book as through the steps as the big book is written. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. And uh, I just want to say thank you for everything and what I'm learning about the steps. And I'm a long time, and what I'm learning about the big book from people like you, it's quite fascinating. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Michael. Anyone else? Yes, hi. This is Anita hi, L. Is from Philadelphia. Hi, Anita. Hold on one second. I heard someone else as well. Uh, Denise from Tennessee. Okay, Anita and then Denise, please. Go ahead, Anita. Yes, good morning. Thank you so much, Barbara. Your story was amazing, and I related into a lot of it. Um, one thing that really hit me was I love the way that you shared uh with your making amends with your daughter and saying that your daughter hated you. And uh, so you asked her if there were any other things that you had done that you needed to make amends to her for. And then she proceeded to talk for 45 minutes. I have uh, three family members who have recently passed and I just wonder if you've experienced or have heard anyone else experience um, if any of their amends were not complete with with those passing people who were close to them and how they proceeded with that. 
Okay, some of the people I sponsor have had that. I'm very lucky. Nobody in my family, while I was doing my steps for the first 10 years, had died. Everybody was around. But the real truth about step nine starts with step eight. The willingness to correct what was wrong is really what's important here. The, the saying I'm sorry to somebody isn't really, I mean, People, my daughter needed to hear it, spouses need to hear it. Certain people really need to hear you say, I'm sorry. But for us to clean our side of the street, that whole thing is that if I could, I would correct this. And when somebody's dead, you can't. And so, again, it's just a matter of giving up control, that I have to apologize to these people, even if they're dead, so that I feel better or that I can then move on. The truth is, as long as you were, are willing to, and if you need to, I've had people where they write a letter and go to the graveyard and read it, or like one guy I know who, who like, his father always wrote in a green pen. He wrote a letter to his dead father using a green pen. Like, whatever... You get inspired to to do that you need to do in order to just release this. Then I would suggest doing it, and and I really try and not tell people what to do because nobody's higher power. But if you really pray on it, and that's really the truth that I have found, if you pray on something, the right answer comes. Yeah. And I'm sure if you really sincerely want to clean this up, you'll be inspired on how to do it. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thanks for your sharing. You're welcome. Thank you, Anita. Now let's move on to Denise, please. Hi, this is Denise from East Tennessee. Uh, Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Um, Thank you so much. Wonderful, wonderful, uh, awesome share. Wow. Um, I have a question, and it's... um, it struck me that when you were talking about how you were just struck abstinent on day one, I, I find it very similar to what happened to Bill W. He he had he was I think it was Bill W. Anyway, um, he was just struck sober, and I wonder how you work with others based on that fact and what their expectations of their own transformation might be. And um, just wanted you to maybe address that. Thank you. Okay. Well, as a step sponsor, I love this because I get to go on the journey with people. I get to watch people blossom. And what I have found is that when people do exactly what it says to do in the big book, they have no other choice but to change. And the transformations are unbelievable. What takes place in just a couple of months would normally take years and years and years, if ever, to achieve. So, you know, for me, it's the idea that as long as people are are willing, because this is what this whole program is about, I'm willing to do what this book says to do. And as a result, everything changes. So does that answer your question? Thank you, Denise, for the question. We're assuming that lesson registered. Okay. okay. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, I had muted myself, so um, thank you so much. Great, great. Anyone else with questions for Barbara this morning before we wrap up? This is Carolyn from New York. I hear Carolyn, I believe. Who else did I hear? Bonnie. And Bonnie, go ahead. Okay. um, What's the phone number? Okay, start. Let's start with Carolyn, please. Okay, hi, it's Carolyn. Thank you so much um, for everything you had to say. I really it struck home. Um, I had a question. You said at the beginning you were doing a um, like a step ten twenty times a day, and um, I find that I, I'm doing that more and more. As I catch myself, I'm immediately you know changing my thoughts or or making an amends if I'm there still in the situation. Um, I'm assuming you do this like mentally and then and then say whatever you need to say if the person is still there. I mean, you're not like stopping 20 times a day and writing it out, or are you? No, when I first started, I would, you know, I, if I needed, most of my my stuff was not harmed. So, you know, why step tense? Because once I saw on paper, like I had so many things that I did to people, it became a conscious effort not to say something or do something on purpose. See, my, my whole thing is my core fear is that I'm not going to be special and as a result I'll be left out. So every resentment I had was because people had done that to me and every harm was that I'm going to get you before you get me so that you can destroy me, I'll destroy you. And I stopped it immediately. So when I first started, it was either resentments or fears and I would draw four lines down on a piece of paper with a line going across and that became my five columns. And as time went on, by doing it so often, I'd start doing it in my head correctly. Now, if I'm about to harm somebody, I realize, you know, don't say that, and then I'll stop myself and ask God to teach me to be kind. But when I first started doing it, it was really funny how my higher power worked. I would go to say something like to gossip about somebody or something, and either go dead, someone would be at my door, something would happen that would stop me, but if I'm actually, you know, while I was doing it, if I actually did harm somebody, I quickly turned in my head, and right there and then I said to the person, I'm really sorry I yelled at you, I shouldn't have it, future I will talk to you kindly, you know, like whatever it was that I had to do, but yeah, I, I didn't that I, t- you know, took out a piece of paper and spent like 10 minutes figuring it out. Because what you'll find when you do the inventories and step 10, you really have five main character defects that come to play all the time. And it's usually one or all of those five that are the character defect that's causing you to harm somebody. So you'll be aware of it immediately, and you'll be able to do it very quickly. Hello? Hi. I'm sorry, I said thank you, but I think I was muted. <laughs> sorry. Hello? Hi, ladies. Mary Lou. Hello? Hello, Barbara? Yes, I'm still here. Yes, uh, this is Ellen from Pennsylvania. I sent you an email. Could I have your email address again? I sent you a request, and um, the mail came back. Oh, okay. It's uh, Aunt Babs, 
A U N T B A D S and then the number B A D S. Oh, but an S at the end. It's ant. A U N T. Yes. Okay, Babs. B A B S. Fifty four at yahoo dot com. Okay, and that's all together. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it is. Thank you for thank you very much. And what is your phone number? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Now let's move on to Bonnie, please. Bonnie, would you like to pose a question? Hi. Yes. Uh, my name is Bonnie. Uh, yeah, if we keep going over step ten, and I'm just a little bit confused. Uh, in the book, it says that whenever I have a resentment, I pray, and then I immediately discuss it with someone else. And I just, if you could just go through the steps that you do, that you did in the beginning, because I think step 10 is really important, just like you said. So in the beginning, how did you work step 10? Thank you. Um, For 10, what I did was, um, the part about discussing with somebody really was like what I'm going to do differently. Um, What I was taught is when I have a resentment, the minute I start talking about it, it becomes bigger. The minute as I'm thinking about it, it becomes bigger. So I know pre-programmed. Somebody did something to me. Every single person at work, strangers on a bus, would like all I did was talk about how somebody wronged me. And so what I learned in doing step ten is that stop focusing on what the other person did and just focus on what. I'm doing, which is a character defect coming into play to protect me, it may have protected me when I was younger, but it doesn't protect me now. It causes more harm. So what I learned is that even though it's like, you know, discuss with somebody means like, I, I learned in this program that if you focus on the solution, that's what happens. And if you focus on the problem, that's what happens. So what I, what I was taught was only focus on the solution. And for me, it's step 10 resentment. The focus is getting rid of the character defect that allowed me to get the ball rolling. Okay. I understand. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Bonnie. Mary Lou, are you still around? Yeah, Leah. Yes, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I have that, I have that reception in my apartment. Um, okay. Uh, thank you so much, Barbara, for your share. It was so clear, and I really got a lot out of it. I wanted to ask you about the fear aspect of the ten step because I've been recovered for a few months now, and um, I, uh, you said something about when you feel fearful. I've been doing it when I feel resentful, but when I, you said something about when you feel fearful. Um, mm-hmm. Then do you do a 10-step on the fear also? Yes. And you know what? A lot of people who I talk to actually say that also, oh, I do a step 10 on a resentment. But the step 10, you know, the fourth step part of step 10 is it doesn't matter if it's resentment, a fear, or harm. They're all equally disturbing to your peace of mind and therefore blocks you off from your higher power. And, you know, what I was taught is that, there's two fears. I'm afraid I'm not going to get what I want or I'm going to lose something I already have. And every single resentment or harm is based on that. And so the fear, because whenever you're resentful, if you really look at 
why you're mad and ask yourself, what's so scary about that? You'll see there's a fear underneath it. And that, for me, that was the most important part because whenever I have a fear and if I keep asking myself after I do the inventory, what's so scary about that? What's so scary about that? I come to my core fear, which drives every resentment, every harm, and every other fear. And the solution to no matter what that core fear is, hook up with God. He'll protect you. And so the fear one is so important to do because when we're fearful, we're paralyzed. We don't know what to do. And the minute that you have any kind of action plan, you know, like what, can, what footwork can you do? Because remember, God will only do for you what you can't do for yourself. And there are some things that are footwork that you can do with your fears. And the minute you start taking those actions, your higher power comes into play, and that fear is gone. Because when you do what's in your column four, like for me, like, you know, making sure I have gas and not pulling into, um, pulling into a rest stop, what are the odds of someone jumping in my car with a knife at a rest stop? It's gone because I'm doing everything I can to make sure I'm not in a rest stop. And then the fear goes away. Okay, so Barbara, so like, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so it's very, very important to do a step 10 on your fears. Okay, and you were going to so like, say something else? So for an example, an example, I am fearful of just a quick little fear inventory right now. I am fearful of not being able to pay. I've paid my bills. I am not, I'm dealing with some financial insecurity and fear around paying my iPhone bill. Okay, that's it. That's my fear right now. So how would I do a 10-step on that? Okay, so, you're, so your column one is what am I afraid of? I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to pay my iPhone bill. Column two, what's so scary about that? Why are you afraid of that? I won't be able to call into my morning vision for you meeting. <laughs> Okay. That's it. <laughs> and then three, just as you know, you're, you're realizing you're relying on yourself instead of your higher power. And by doing the steps, you get the experience that whatever's supposed to happen, God's got your back. Column four, what can you do to make sure this doesn't happen? Now, I'll give you a couple of suggestions, and you give me what works for you. You can get a cheapy cell phone that you can still call, you know, like one of the older, and you'll still have service that you can call in instead of having yeah. an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could get a part-time job to have more money. You could babysit. You can clean people's bathrooms. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can do to get the money that you need monthly to pay your iPhone bill. Or you can do something where you don't have an iPhone, but you have something else that serves the purpose. So for you, what would be your action plan? I was thinking of number one. Thank you so much. Yes, it's, it's humbling to have to get a cheapy phone, but... Yes, number one. Um, that's that's when I when you were saying that, my heart just felt the release of the stress because you're just confirming what I already knew I was going to have to do is not be so glamorous with the phone. Mm-hmm. Right, and if you and, go with your instincts, you really do know the answer. And then you just look at column five. What character defects would stop you from getting a cheapy phone? And you also said it was humbling, so probably pride is in your way. Yes, big time because so I have... Yes, because my clients, I'm a hairdresser, they see the blingy phone and my ego, is, yeah, it's crap. It's I want to show off. Yeah, so then what you would do is you would do this inventory. Do you want your, you want pride to be gone? Instead, you want to be humble. You ask God to take away your pride and teach you to be humble. You act as if you're humble. You get in your car and you go to a store and you buy a, a phone that, you know, 
doesn't cost as much as an iPhone. Um, you didn't really harm anybody in this, but you amend, you make plans on how you're going to amend your ways. I'm going to stay within what I can afford. And then you call your sponsor and you say, I was just fearful of the character defect that blocked me off was pride, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy a cheaper phone. And that's Thank your you. step 10 on your fear. Thank you Did so that much. Help? Yeah, it's actually perfect, and it, it, I'm kind of taking notes here for other perfect and the other question was uh regarding that also is i have found that since i took the steps and became recovered that i um that i am being more or do you find that you're being more careful now with your character defects as far as like i'm just keeping my mouth shut uh i don't know if it's allen on or whatever but i'm just really more careful about my character defects since i kind of know what they are i keep my traps shut more often do you find that you're just more able to stay out of other people's stuff and not be reactionary because that's how I've been living for the last few months. I just see it coming and instead of making a mess, I'm very, like, I'm preventative and I try to keep my mouth shut and not react and not like tight, you know, I'm white knuckling it, but I'm just more careful not to harm people. Do you find that you, you do it naturally also? Just do you internally say, oh, that's not my business, I'm not going to react or um, this is a sick man here. And so it just helps me to not be getting into things um, since I took the steps. So I have to call in less ten steps. Exactly. And that's what happened to me like 13 and a half years later of doing step tens. Um, that's exactly what has happened. I don't really even have to make a conscious decision to keep my mouth shut or to activate. That has become my way of life. If somebody's doing something that, you know, like screaming or something, I don't have to stay in the area. If somebody's screaming on the phone, I don't have to retaliate or scream back. All I do is say, I'll have to call you back later and get off the phone. I really am at a point where my higher power guides me. And to me, my higher power is pure love and no opposite. And he would never be mean to somebody and he would never do harm. And as his agent, that's the way I live now. What would, you know, what does my higher power want me to do and give me the strength to carry that out? And he wants me to be kind, caring, and loving. And as a result of realizing that, I really don't cause harm anymore. Thank you, Mary Lou, for the question. And anyone else before we bid one another farewell? Any other questions? Liz, Liz go Liz. ahead. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Liz. Liz from California. Um, wow, this is super something that I've been working on since, well, yesterday about letting go of what other people are doing and it doesn't have to affect me. There was a woman who was gossiping, a friend of mine gossiping about her husband right there. Husband's there, I'm there, and I talked about how it triggered me from childhood. And then I realized what she does does not have to affect me. I can detach myself from it um, because it's who she is, her character defect, and I love her anyway, and I don't have to have that interfere with the relationship. However, um, I grew up in a home where my mother said, whatever I do can affect other people. What I say, how I say it, so I've been in so much fear. So I just realized, you know, yesterday, well, then what I say, it's not my responsibility to take care of how other people feel. And I don't know if I could find the balance. And I'm hearing that I need to pray. Maybe I need to pray for God to help me in this so I wouldn't be in so much fear from what I grew up in. Thank you. 
So you're not responsible for how anybody else feels, but you are responsible for how you act and how you talk to people. And, you know, the funny part is, like, all the people in your life right now um, serve a purpose for teaching you to be the opposite. But what you will find is that once you're, you're done with the steps or on the other side of top, you have one personality. No matter who you're with, you're the same person. And the people in your life, you have certain scripts with your husband, with your boss, with your children, and each one is a slight different personality. And what happens is as you go through the steps and your character defects get removed and you become just that one personality, your script changes. And the people who are not good for you in your life, you don't even have to do anything. They just fall away because you're no longer fun. They don't get the reaction because no one does anything unless they get a payoff. So if your script with someone like, you know, was to be annoyed or try and give advice to them or tell them they're wrong or something, when you stop doing that, either they change or they go away. Thank you, Liz, for the question. And, of course, Barbara, thank you so much for your time and energy this morning on the line. Thank you for sharing your story of transformation as a result of the 12 steps. Very much appreciated. And I will close a vision for you meeting this morning the way we always close our meetings. I'm sorry? The phone number. The phone number. Okay. Barbara's phone number is 973-463-1998. Thank you. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.